you will join me in Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1 this morning in verses 11 through 24. The title of our sermon is A Former Life, and our key words for worshipers in training are Jew, Pharisee, and Paul. Seventeen thirty five, John and Charles Wesley sailed with General James Oglethorpe, who is probably a familiar name to most of you. It was General Oglethorpe's second expedition from England to what is now called Savannah, Georgia. John and Charles were both graduates of Oxford University. They were ordained Anglican clergymen. The Wesley brothers traveled with Oglethorpe in missionary service to convert the Native Americans. However, on this journey, both of them had a very strong doubt that they themselves were actually converted. Neither John nor Charles Wesley could find assurance that they were, in fact, children of God. And they returned to England believing that they were complete failures in all that they had set out to do. John wrote in his journal, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? Shortly after their return to England, John and Charles met a group of Moravians, and they befriended them and spoke often with them about the truths of Scripture. And on May 21st, 1738, Charles was immediately struck by the truth that the Moravians had been teaching about salvation, namely that it came by grace through faith apart from works of the law. And Charles wrote in his journal that night that the Spirit of God chased away the darkness of my unbelief. At midnight, I gave myself to Christ, assured that I was safe, whether sleeping or waking, I had the continual experience of his power to overcome all temptation, and I confessed with joy and surprise that he was able to do exceedingly abundantly for me above what I can ask or think. And then three days later, his brother John was in a a meeting house in, in London wherein he experienced what he later wrote about in his journal. He writes, In the evening, I I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. And so John immediately went to his brother Charles and shared with him. And Charles wrote this, Toward ten, my brother, who was brought in triumph by a troop of our friends, and declared, I believe! We sang a hymn of great joy and we parted with prayer. Now prior to these incidents, John and Charles Wesley were both ordained ministers. They were preaching, they were teaching, they were writing and composing and singing great hymns of the faith and even doing missionary work, but all of it was to no avail. They lived by works and not by faith in Christ. But upon their conversion... Their worlds changed forever. Charles began to write new hymns with increased fervor. He, he traveled throughout Great Britain with his brother John, and they went over a quarter million miles, more, mostly on horseback, leading great crowds in singing 
the hymns that he was writing in mass outdoor services of 40,000 or more people. And with every new spiritual experience or thought that crossed Charles's mind, he wrote a new hymn. Even on his deathbed, it's said that he dictated to his wife the words of a praise hymn to the Lord. But one special song that he wrote, one that we sing here regularly, Charles penned almost immediately after the story of his conversion to Christ. It includes these wonderful words. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And he continues in the final verse, No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head and clothed in righteousness divine. Behold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. And that great refrain, amazing love, how can it be? And thou, my Lord, should die for me. This is the precious truth of the gospel that awoke John and Charles Wesley. And and there are many precious stories just like these. Stories of God's working in the lives of his people to bring them to salvation in Christ. Each and every one of us here this morning who is a Christian has a story to tell about how God brought us to saving faith in Jesus. For some of us, it was an instant conversion. One minute you knew you were a sinful, rebellious enemy of God, and the next minute you're depending on Christ as your all in all. For others, uh, perhaps it's a more gradual conversion. You hear the gospel, you ask a lot of questions, you continue to learn, and in time the Lord brings you to an awareness of your sin, and you repent and trust in Christ but there, there maybe wasn't a lot of fanfare or dramatic, uh, moment, a dramatic moment in time or a specific experience you can point to. But the Lord uses all sorts of different circumstances in the lives of his people. But one thing is true of every single person who trusts in Jesus Christ. All of us have the same testimony as Charles Wesley in this regard. That we can all say, my chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And this morning, we're going to look again at Paul's letter to the Galatians, and here we get a glimpse into this wonderful reality in Paul's life. When his chains fell off, when he was set free, freed from the bondage of works, free from the bondage of self-righteousness that he had spent his life in until he met, dramatically met, with Jesus Christ. Paul is particularly pained at this point in time to see this young church in Galatia being deceived and misled by false teachers who are seeking to bring God's people into a salvation of works in addition to believing in Christ as the Messiah. They're trying to put the chains back on God's people that have already fallen away. So Paul gives an accounting of his own life, and he shows that he is a genuine apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's been asserting that all along. 
And he once again visits the truth that the gospel was given to him by Christ and not by man. So the main thing we're going to see this morning is that this is true for everyone as it was for Paul. Namely, that unless the gospel is revealed to us by God, we cannot truly know and believe it, even if we can articulate it with words and speak of it conceptually. So let's read the entire passage together. We'll begin in verse 11, Galatians chapter 1. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. In what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. And I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And they glorified God because of me. And we're going to bounce around a little bit in this passage this morning. But first I want us to see in verses 13 and 14 that apart from the gospel, we are hopelessly chained to a false gospel of works. Now, Paul doesn't shy away from uh, the reality of what kind of man he was before Christ saved him. He's actually doing two things here that he does in other letters as well. And that is, first, he's identifying that he was, in fact, a very devout, very zealous Jew. There is no question about that in his life. He was of the highest Jewish pedigree. You just don't get more Jewish than Paul was. And we read about that early in our call to worship. The second thing he establishes is that he has, at this point, left all of his Jewishness behind in terms of the religious system that he believed. And specifically here, in the context of Paul's establishing the truthfulness of the gospel he has preached, he's highlighting the fact that his life used to be a life lived, all bound up in the chains of a religion of works. In his letter to the Philippians, which we read earlier, Paul says he's a Hebrew of Hebrews. In fact, he's so bold to write, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. However, Paul's intention is not to brag. 
He's not bragging about these things. He's simply outlining for us what his life was like before Christ revealed the gospel to him. Erasmus writes of this, it teaches us what people are like and how they behave when they have not yet been enlightened by the grace of the gospel. Before the light of the gospel comes to them, people are enemies and adversaries of the gospel, persecutors of the church of God. Then they try to destroy it and they are firmly of the opinion that the works of the law are the cause of justification And they are great followers of tradition from what Paul says here. We can also describe how people behave before they are enlightened by the gospel. What Paul says about himself by way of hypothesis can be applied to everyone who has not yet been enlightened. This, friends, is some of you here right now. You may not be out trying to kill Christians like the Apostle Paul was doing prior to his conversion but you are similarly living upon your own works. You're striving against the truth of God. Any attempt at earning God's favor apart from Christ is an affront to the sacrificial life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. All false religions, all opposing worldviews are in opposition to the truth of the gospel. Paul shows us by his own life that confidence in the flesh is a deadly confidence. It is a confidence in the imperfect before a God who demands absolute perfection. A perfection that is found only in Jesus Christ. But you see, apart from Christ, we have no other option other than a false gospel of works. It's the only other choice. Every other worldview that exists other than Christianity is rooted in works. How many times have you heard someone say, well, I'm a good person, or I try hard to do the right thing, or I'm trying to do right, I pay my bills, I work hard, I put food on the table, I care for my family. Okay, so we can identify those things for what they are. They're all works-based justification. But what about this? I go to church every Sunday. I read my Bible regularly. I pray before meals, even in public. I volunteer for vacation Bible school every summer. Well, that all sounds a lot like I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my father's. Now listen, those things I've mentioned are good, they're important and necessary, and as Christians, those are things we must do. However, when we really evaluate our lives, now I'm not talking about when I ask you, tell me why God will accept you into heaven, and you tell me, well, on the merits of Christ who died in my place and was resurrected from the dead. No, in your heart of hearts, when you evaluate why it is that you personally think that God will accept you into heaven, what do you really believe? You may say with your mouth that you know you are not saved by works, but what motivates you to do what you do? Why do you read your Bible every day? To meet with God? To grow in communion with him? Or so that you can tell God you did it? that maybe he'll be more happy with you. 
that maybe he'll accept you on that basis. Do you see the difference? Brothers and sisters, that's what's so liberating about the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can do what I do and what I'm called to do by God freed up from the fear that it's not going to be enough to satisfy God because I can remind myself every single day that nothing I do will ever be enough to satisfy God. But everything that Christ has done on my behalf has already satisfied God. So I don't do good works out of an obligation to earn my spot in heaven. And I say that as though I've got this figured out. We ought not. We ought to do good works out of faithful obedience to God's word because we lovingly follow his way and not our own because they are best for us, because they bring him glory. They give us sweeter, fuller, more lasting communion with him. You can recognize the religion of works in what Paul says in verse 14. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age. He was advancing. He was, he was climbing the ladder. I was doing greater and greater works. I was earning my way to the top, so much so that I was killing Christians because I thought they were enemies of God. It's a tiring, laborious work that ends in utter despair a works righteousness mentality, a pursuit of life with God based upon works. It's a life lived in tightly drawn chains from which we cannot escape on our own. We must be set free or we have no hope. We cannot set ourselves free. It's not something we can do on our own. Let us think together. Let us be challenged As I stand before God and he asks me, why is it that you would come into my kingdom? That instantly, if my answer begins with I instead of Christ, that I am bound in a works-based mentality. My righteousness is based upon myself and not upon Christ. Well, Paul shows us that we cannot set ourselves free from the bondage of the chains of self-righteous religion. In verses 11 and 12 and verses 15 and 17, we see our second point this morning, and that is that the gospel must be revealed to us by God himself. Now, in one sense, what Paul here is, uh, is writing is utterly unique to him and something that we cannot claim for ourselves. Within the context of the issues going on in the Galatian church, Paul is seeking to make clear that everyone is understanding that what has been said about him by the false teachers is utterly false. Remember, the Judaizers were claiming that Paul wasn't an authentic disciple, or excuse me, apostle. So he wasn't preaching an authentic gospel. He's not a real apostle, therefore you can't believe the gospel he preaches. And so they were calling on the people to believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah and to commit themselves to living as Jews, to live in accordance with the law as necessary to their salvation. So if you recall back in verse 1 from the very beginning, Paul asserts that he's not an apostle appointed or called by man, but he's an apostle appointed and called through Jesus Christ and God the Father. 
And now he goes on to identify that not only was his apostleship not from man, nor either is his message from man. The message of the gospel that Paul preached to the Galatians when he was there before, the message of the gospel that he is now so vigorously defending, it came to him not through man's teaching, but directly from heaven. He says in Damascus and Arabia, that same Christ who had taught the twelve taught me. After his resurrection, he opened their minds to understanding the scriptures. He poured out the Holy Spirit in order to lead them in all truth. And now Paul is under his own immediate instruction by Christ. This really destroys any argument that Paul's teaching cannot be trusted, right? It's even a common thing to hear today that Paul's writing is somehow different than what Jesus has to say. That we should reject the words of Paul. Because he was a man of his culture. And as such, the thing he wrote, the, the, the things that he wrote were, were culturally bound. We can't have the same expectations today that he had in the first century as Christians. But Paul's telling us very plainly that what he is preaching and what he is teaching came to him directly from Christ himself. So we can't divide Jesus and Paul. We can't say that Paul is on a different course than Jesus. The message is one and the same. And furthermore, we we can read what Paul has written, the gospel that he has proclaimed, and we can use it as a measuring rod against which to compare all other claims of truth. It does not measure up to what we read in the writings of Paul, and if it doesn't measure up, it is not of Christ. And if it is not of Christ, it must not be preached, it must not be believed. It is a counterfeit. But while Paul is defending the authenticity and truthfulness of his message and preaching, we have to likewise notice there's something absolutely true about all who are Christians and what Paul writes when comparing his life to ours. You and I have heard preaching and teaching. We've heard the gospel from friends and neighbors. We've all come to hear the gospel in different ways at different times. God has used those means to bring us to faith and repentance ourselves. But the truth is, we can hear the gospel over and over and over again. We might even be able to articulate the gospel and talk about it and all of its implications but still not believe it. It's not until it is revealed to us by God that the blinding scales will fall from our eyes and we will see the fullness of the truth of the gospel. We may very well go much of our lives like John and Charles Wesley, men who were actively involved in ministry, actively seeking the conversion of those who were apart from Christ and yet were wholly unconverted themselves. We can learn at the greatest seminaries in the world from the greatest professors Christianity has to offer, but if God alone does not work by the power of the Holy Spirit to apply all of the benefits of Jesus Christ to our lives, then we have nothing. But when he does we can joyfully say, my chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. And it's then that we know that the gospel and the love 
and the gospel, uh, the, the love of the gospel that God has given to us is real. That we can look to Christ who, who tells us, just as he told Simon Peter, blessed are you, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. It's interesting, in verse 15, you'll note that Paul writes that he was set apart before he was born and was called by the grace of God. Now, there's likely several things he means there concerning not just his salvation, but also his calling as an apostle and specifically as one to, send, to, to be sent as a pioneer missionary to the Gentiles. But there's, this is quite similar to the language that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. When he talks about every Christian, he writes, He chose us in him before the foundations of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. Brothers and sisters, you are not an afterthought of God. You are not simply a product of your environment. You you didn't just happen to stumble upon the truth of the gospel and believe it because you thought it sounded good or you were smart enough to figure it all out. If you are a Christian, it is because God determined that he would set you aside before you were born, before the foundations of the world, and call you his child. That should give us great hope. That should give us great assurance. And that should be a great reminder to all of us that God truly does love us as his children. Paul writes in verse 16 that God was pleased to reveal his son to me. That's what happens, isn't it? First, first Corinthians, excuse me, Second Corinthians chapter 4, Paul writes that the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in my heart to give me the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And as a result, Paul came to know not only the truth about God's son, but to actually know God's son. And this is a word of hope to even those who look at their own lives and think, I'm unworthy, I'm dirty, I'm not clean, I'm worthless, I'm filled with evil, I've done horrible things, I've lived a terrible life. God could never love me. God would never save me. God would never want anything to do with me. You know, one of the reasons God chose Paul to do what he did with him was so that we could look at his life and see the work of God in his life and say, God saved Paul. God can save me. That's why Paul, ashamed as he must have been for all that he did, he still continued to bring up the truth that no matter the fact that he was a superior Jew, that he still needed Christ. So much, so, so zealous was he that he was killing God's people. He was ruthless. He was relentless. He was pursuing Christians to destroy them and to put an end to Christianity. And Paul says, you know about my former life? I persecuted the church of God violently and I tried to destroy it. Friend, I want to tell you this morning that you are right if you say that you are not worthy to have Jesus come from heaven to earth to live a perfect life and to die a sinner's death that you might live. You're not worthy of that. 
And I am not worthy of that. Nobody in this room is worthy of that. The Apostle Paul was not worthy of that. Nor anyone else who has ever lived is worthy of that. We are not worthy of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. We will never be worthy of that. We simply cannot be worthy of that because our sin against God is too great. Our treasonous actions against our creator are too immense. But thanks be to God that he has made a way for us. In God's mercy, he calls on us to repent, to believe on Christ that we can walk in the newness of life as new creatures filled with the spirit of God, free from the bondage of the chains of self-righteousness. You will never clean yourself up enough to be right before God. It's not possible. It's already too late. But there's good news. You don't have to. Christ is all you need. And if you are not a believer in Christ, will you repent of your sin and believe on him? Will you trust in him? Will you find all of your hope and satisfaction and rest and peace and joy in him? Nobody's here by accident this morning. God is far too great to let you go through life by accident. And I want to suggest that perhaps today you're here because God wants you to hear this liberating truth that you can stop trying to be good and start living instead by grace, through faith, apart from works of the law. Now, if you're a believer in Christ, are you really trusting in his finished work on your behalf? Are you living wholly dependent upon him in all of life? The chains of works righteousness have been broken. Are you still living as though they are there? God himself has made you to be who you are in Jesus Christ. God himself revealed to you the gospel. He removed the scales from your eyes. And so you're free to walk away from your former life and to rest in Christ. Your transformation may not have appeared to be as radical on the outside as it was for the Apostle Paul, but I assure you it's no less amazing and no less a work of God, what he has done on the inside. And we praise God for new life in Jesus Christ. Well, the final thing we'll look at this morning is that our ultimate trust is in God and the gospel given to us in Christ, not in the teaching of man He addresses this in verses 18 through 24. And perhaps, as a point, this seems a bit odd because I'm standing here before you as a preacher of the word of God. In essence, I'm saying, don't put your trust in what I'm saying. In fact, I am saying, don't just believe it because I say it. Paul commended the Berean church Because after he preached, they returned immediately to the word of God to ensure that what he was saying was true. And I absolutely hope you do that. Never take for granted that because you hear it in church, it's automatically right. Now, I mean, I obviously think I'm right or I wouldn't say it. (laughs) But there is a scant possibility in the realm of scenarios in the universe that I could be wrong at some point possible. 
Know the word of God and don't depend on others to know it for you. Here in these final verses, we get a glimpse into some of Paul's movements after his conversion. And it might have been expected that he was going to return immediately to Jerusalem after his conversion and spend some time in the company of the apostles, learning from them in his newfound faith. Instead, he tells us he went immediately into Arabia. He said that in verse 17. Now, the reason for this he doesn't give us, it was in all likelihood for prolonged study and meditation and communion with Christ. But it's interesting that when Paul continues explaining his travels, the emphasis is on how few of the apostles he encountered. I saw Cephas for 15 days. I saw James briefly. I got to Judea and nobody even knew who I was there other than I used to kill Christians and now I'm one of them. And uh, for that, they gave glory to God. And that's it. I love how in the middle of this, in verse 20, he says, I'm not lying. I'm telling you the truth. You see, Paul's point is once again that the gospel I'm preaching to you is not from man. It's not something I learned from men. I didn't learn it from other apostles. I learned it from God. Now, clearly, Paul has a very robust foundation that we didn't have to build on his gospel preaching. He was, as we pointed out, very knowledgeable as a Jew. He understood the scriptures. So he wasn't receiving the gospel on sort of a blank slate. However, what Paul did know of the teachings of Jesus and all of its implications wasn't because he spent a great deal of time in Jerusalem learning from the apostles, learning from them, asking questions about what Jesus taught about various things. Why was all of this important to him to even bring up? It's very likely that the Judaizers were telling the Galatians that one of the ways that Paul got his gospel wrong was that he he must have misunderstood and miscommunicated what he had already heard from the twelve. They told him what was true, and he didn't get it all the way. And so Paul is communicating back to the Galatians at this point, no, you see, I didn't even spend time with those guys. So they didn't teach me anything. And it all harkens back to our previous point. I didn't get this from men. I learned it from God himself. Now, let's be clear. It is important for all of us to learn what God has taught his church throughout the generations through godly men and women that he has used in numerous ways. It is the height of arrogance. It's the height of naivete to think that we can just sit down alone with our Bibles and figure it all out on our own without others' input. We need the voices of the church throughout the centuries to help us learn and to grow and to understand. However, as we hear those voices, we need to look back at the word of God. All that God has preserved for us, we can utilize. And we need to always be humble enough to consider what others have said. However, we need to bring it back to the word of God. How does it compare We haven't communicated with God in the same way that Paul the Apostle did when he received a word directly from Christ. But we have received the word of God in its fullest and completest sense in the scriptures. 
And so we need to use it as it is intended to instruct us, to challenge us, to grow us, to bring us conviction of our sin, to restore hope in the midst of hopelessness. I need the word of God most ultimately to remind me who I am, who Christ is, and what Christ has accomplished for me and in me. And when everyone who has known me from my former life And when anyone who has known any of us from our former lives can look at us, they can see what Christ has done. Not because of man, but because of God. Not because I clean myself up, but because Christ has died in my place and by the Holy Spirit has changed me into a new creation. And perhaps their response to our lives, like the Apostle Paul, can be that they glorify God because of me and because of you. Amen.